There are two kinds of people rare in the world, the Buddha said. Which two? The one who is first to do a kindness and the one who is grateful and thankful for a kindness that's been done. When we look at our life, or even just look at the day, we can see how blessed we are to have the conditions that we do in our life. And if we take the practice of counting our blessings at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, any time of day, then for sure it will lead to a sense of gratitude and happiness. Our entire human life is, is only possible through the kindness of others, beginning with our parents, doing the best they could, and carrying on from there. We have so much to be grateful for just to be born a human being. In the Buddha's teachings, it's said to be born a human being is an extraordinary blessing, opportunity. And then for most of us to have been born in the West, which has an extraordinary standard of living, and all of us here have a fine education, we're well fed, we have some discretionary funds, at least enough to be here, we have the discretionary time to take practicing Dharma, we have access to the Dharma. We have access to a Sangha that cares to present the Dharma. We have good enough health to practice. And maybe as significant as all of these, we have the karmic profile to be interested in the Dharma and to benefit from hearing the Dharma, practicing the Dharma, and in our own time and in our own way, realizing to some degree the way things are. All of this benefit and blessings comes to us out of the kindness of others. Without others, we wouldn't have these opportunities. We wouldn't have these extraordinary conditions that we live with. So the question for each of us is, do we recognize this? Can we appreciate what we do have? Can we express our gratitude? And can we make a gift of our life for the benefit of others as we have been benefited by the gifts of others' life? When asked, the Buddha said, the teachings of the Buddha are three. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify the mind. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify the mind. Interestingly, all of these uh, teachings are fulfilled in a single act 
of generosity. And the Buddha initially spoke about generosity to those who inquired of his teaching. Generosity is not particularly a Buddhist teaching. Everyone the world over knows of generosity. Everyone appreciates it. Everyone practices it to some degree. And so the Buddha would start teaching that which was readily understood, acknowledged by everyone. And he would then point out the benefits of practicing generosity, how to practice generosity skillfully, wisely, and he would also point out the limitations of the practice of generosity. But it's significant that the Buddha would start with the teachings of generosity because you remember the Four Noble Truths? The first truth of dukkha, second truth caused by craving, third truth, there is an end to dukkha. There is an end to craving. And that practice is to let go. Letting go is the path to the end of craving. The end of craving is the end of dukkha. Practicing generosity, being generous with your time, your resources, your knowledge, your love, being generous with what we have, doing what we can, is learning how to let go. It is the most basic uh, letting go because we let go of what we think we are, what we think we have, what we think we need, and we find in the result a greater sense of ease and well-being. Go figure. How does that happen? Shantideva, an 8th century Indian scholar who wrote a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. And all the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. So tonight I want to speak about wise generosity. Generosity infused with the beautiful qualities of mind. And how wishing for the happiness of others is the most effective way to plant the seeds of happiness for oneself. Mahasi Sayadaw was a renowned uh, Buddhist monk in Burma in the last century. And he's kind of the grandfather, one of the grandfathers of the Vipassana tradition in the West. He's the Burmese grandfather, and we have the Thai grandfather, Ajahn Chah. But the Burmese grandfather of this tradition that we're practicing in is Mahasi Sayadaw, renowned scholar, extraordinary meditator, and a great uh, benefactor to those who wish to practice and realize the teachings of the Buddha. In his brief uh, comment called Encouraging Counsel, he says, It is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. 
So we might ask, how's that happen? Or as one of my teachers used to say, spin that out for me. Well, the primary element or the condition in practicing generosity is to watch your intention. What is the intention in practicing generosity? And it is to remove attachment. It is to loosen the grip of attachment, clinging, craving in the mind. To offer something to someone. In order to sincerely offer it, we have to let go of it. And so it is cultivating non-attachment. When you choose someone to offer a gift to, there's some level of appreciation for them or of them. Not because you owe them anything, but just that there's some non-aversion to them. And in the giving, there is an understanding, non-delusion of what you're doing, the benefit to yourself and the benefit to others. And so we can see that in the simple act of looking at your intention in offering your time, your knowledge, your wisdom. We cultivate the three roots of wholesomeness, non-attachment, non-aversion, non-delusion. If we can cultivate that intention, not only for our own happiness and self-interest, but out of an understanding that it can be a benefit to another, and in fact, in some inscrutable ways, it can be a benefit to all beings, and eventually help to lead to the liberation of all beings. And this is the Bodhisattva's vow. This is the Bodhisattva's ideal, to act in the world for the liberation of all beings, to bring all beings to the end of suffering. When we purify our own mind in developing this purity of intention, we have to remove aversion. We have to remove jealousy. We have to remove attachment. We have to remove fear. We have to remove all of the unwholesome states of mind and in their place arise in the mind the wholesome qualities. Love, generosity, faith, confidence, joy, uh, tranquility of mind, equanimity, understanding. Such a gift we give ourselves by just cultivating the intention to be generous. There are three phases in an act of generosity. Before we practice generosity, before we offer something, we think about it. We have to think about it. And if we think about it from a place of purity, a place of sincerity, a place of already not having an uh, attachment to the gift, or to the recipient, or attachment to the benefit to oneself, but just out of understanding these are all present, then in thinking about it before the act, then 
we take delight. We get, we get joyful. We get excited. We get uh, inspired, interested to do that. And then following through, acquiring a gift, making it the appointment, getting the time, getting the place. When we actually see the person, we have the gift, we offer it to them, we see, we hear, we touch. It impacts our senses in so many ways, making an extraordinary impression in the mind. And this is what karma does. All karmic acts make an impression in the mind. And if we have a strong intention and we're clear and mindful as we perform this act of generosity, then it impacts us tremendously through all the sense doors, including our heart. And this brings a great inspiration, really lifts the mind to uh, a delight in being able to share and to see the happiness of the recipient in receiving. After the fact, every time you remember this act of generosity, there's a twinge of happiness again. And the more you remember, the more happiness you feel. The more you practice generosity, the more memories you have, the more happiness you have. You want to be happy? Think about, think about the times you've been generous. And if it has made an impact on you through the clarity of the intention, the purity of the intention, the immediacy of the contact, then you can't help but feel good about it. Several years ago, I was living in Western Massachusetts, and I read a little newspaper article about uh, a potter in a nearby village who had studied in Japan, had returned to Massachusetts, had set up a shop, uh, his studio and his uh, display showroom, and as a, as a gift of appreciation to his uh, teacher, teachers in Japan, he had built a Japanese tea house on his property. And he'd uh, made uh, quite extensive uh, Japanese gardens. And every summer he would bring someone from Japan to offer the tea ceremony freely to people in the community. So I didn't know anything about it, but I thought that'd be interesting. So I went. And walking around the grounds of his gardens and his studio and his showroom and being served tea in a formal tea ceremony, it was just delightful. It was just great. It was, you know, a kind of a, a slice out of time and place of my usual hectic life. And it just really touched me. So out of appreciation for that experience, when the potter returned, he wasn't there the day I visited, but when the potter returned, I went to see him and I took a gift. I was very poor at the time and uh, didn't didn't have anything of value that I thought he could appreciate, except I made bread. I baked bread every week because I was a manual worker and I needed it, and so I took one of my loaves of bread to him. And he was a single guy, a middle-aged single guy and living there, and so we, we met and I offered him uh, the bread and expressed my appreciation, and he invited me 
to help him fire his kill. His kill is a, uh, a wood-fired kill. He only fires it four times a year, and it takes about 36 hours to fire the kill. So he got it started, 10 or 12 hours, and then he asked me to come in and keep the wood going, keep the wood going into the kill to keep it, the temperature rising while he got some rest. Then he came back, and I did it throughout the night. He came back, finished off the firing as a gift for helping him fire his kill. He told me that in a couple of days, when it cooled off enough to unpack, when we took everything out, I could choose one piece of my own. So went back in a couple of days, opened up the kill, took everything out. He set aside all that he considered number 10s and put those over there. They're museum quality pieces. But then of everything that's left, he said, take your pick. So I, I looked around and it was nice. It was all nice stuff. And But I found a bowl. I found a bowl about the size of a meal. <laughs> and so I accepted this bowl from him. And then for the next several years, Every time I went on retreat, I took that bowl. And so, you know how you feel on retreat? Man, everything is so precious. Everything is so, mm, mm, mm. You know, just like, wow, I invested that bowl with a tremendous amount of attachment. <laughs> uh, uh, gratitude, love, appreciation, uh, attachment. <laughs> anyway, it was really useful. And it, it, it had just the right amount, you know, for a meal. Not, not too much, not too little. So I, I, I used it for uh, spiritual practice. Several years later, I went to, to Burma, ordained, stayed away from the States for five years. Everything I had was in storage. But during the time of my ordination in Burma, I had tremendous gratitude for my Dharma teachers. So when I returned, disrobed, I wanted to offer my Western teachers a gift out of appreciation for their having introduced me to the Dharma. So I looked through all my stuff. And I found this bowl. So I said, wow, this is the most valuable thing I own. It means a lot to me. I really value it. I'm going to give it away. So I offered it to one of my teachers. And she received it with expressions of gratitude and joy. And I saw that she put it on the mantle in her house. She had a new house and had a mantle. And for, for many months or years, when I would go to visit her, I would see, oh, there it is, there it is. And it was always a reminder and brought a lot of joy and happiness. I lost track of her and just didn't kind of keep in touch so much. And several years later, after I'd been teaching for a number of years, I was invited to uh, a Dharma benefactor's home for a dinner and Dharma discussion. And I went and we were having dinner in the patio outside. And as the evening got cooler, we went inside and this woman was a, a Dharma practitioner and a Dharma benefactor, and she'd really done her work. Went into her house to sit to have a seat because it was cool outside, and she said, we can sit in the living room. So I went into the living room, and there was nothing in there except a little one-inch-high Buddha on the mantelpiece and two stuffed chairs on opposite sides of a small coffee table in one corner. So she said, we can sit over here. So. We went to the chairs and sat down in the two chairs, and there on the tab coffee table between us was that bowl. I said, hey, 
nice bow you got there. <laughs> she says, yes, you know, it's so nice. One of my teachers gave it to me. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> Would you like to know the history of that bow? And the story unfolded. What I have discovered, or what I realize now, out of the story of the bowl, the history of the bowl is, the happiness that that bowl has brought to the potter in giving it to me, to me in receiving it and using it, and offering it to my teacher, and to her receiving it and displaying it in her house, and having the opportunity to give it to her benefactor, and the benefactor for having received it from her teacher and having it as a, I don't know, an item in her living room to appreciate, the happiness that that has brought to all of us is infinitely more than the cost of that bowl. But it's only possible by giving it away. That's what we have in our life. Everything that we receive in our life is a gift to use, to give away. We never lose anything that we give away because the memory is always there. The happiness is always there. Generosity, or dana, is one of the beautiful qualities of mind, one of the qualities of inner beauty that we're speaking about this retreat, one of the paramis and as Kamala mentioned last night, the paramis are the forces of purity or the forces of perfection in the mind. As the Buddha said, if beings knew, as I know, the resultant benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. They would not let any opportunity go by without sharing. If we knew what he knew, about the benefits of generosity. It is said that there are five benefits to one who's generous. First, if you're generous, people like you. But that's not the reason for practicing generosity. But do you know anyone who's generous that you don't have some feeling of affection for? When practicing generosity in the Dharma setting, whether it's the teachers, or monasteries, or monks, or nuns, you get to associate with those who have some degree of nobility, some who have already developed some of the beautiful qualities of their heart and mind. It's also said that those who are generous have a good reputation. They're well-liked, and their, their uh, acti actions, their benefit, is blameless. Who blames someone who's generous? We all appreciate that. Whether the gift is to us or to others, we appreciate that there are generous people. It's also said that those who are generous have a lot of self-confidence, where they have no fear or self-consciousness in being or entering any group. We'll see. We'll see. And finally, it's said that those who are generous have a happy rebirth, either as a heavenly being or as a wealthy human. <laughs> Not having memory of past lives, I don't, can't confirm that, but 
Let's see where Bill Gates ended up. <laughs> <coughs> so Nicholas Kristof, writing in an op-ed column piece in the New York Times in January, said, research at the National Institute of Health has found that when one thinks of offering generosity to charity, areas of the brain light up that are usually associated with selfish pleasures like eating and sex, implying that we are hardwired to be altruistic. And he concluded, while charity has a mixed record of helping others, it has an almost perfect record of helping ourselves. Generosity is a mindfulness practice. What we're doing here is practicing generosity in order to be aware of the way things are in our life, in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, and around us, in our environment. By developing awareness, when we look around, we see tremendous amount of suffering and need. And it's just everywhere. It takes courage to see that. It takes a steadiness of mind to see that and not just get overwhelmed and withdraw out of resignation and frustration and disappointment and blaming, but to see, wow, this is the way it is. You know, even though we live in the West and the States is a tremendously wealthy country, there is a tremendous amount of need going unmet. In walking down the road here, Kamala and I walking by this orchard, full of trees that are full of fruit that can't be sold for one reason or another, just there isn't the market or whatnot. And I was just thinking, what are the, what's happening here? There's all these trees and all this fruit and all these hungry people. Okay, so you see it. How do you handle it? How do you hold it without just getting overwhelmed or start blaming somebody? or just getting frustrated, or just resigning and saying, well, well, that's the way it is. Because generosity is a mindfulness practice, we are going to see opportunities for practicing generosity. <clears throat> I mentioned that I'd gone to Burma to ordain, and I spent the four years in Burma and one year outside of Burma in robes. And in all that time, everything was provided for me. As a monk, you can't handle money, you can't earn money, you can't spend money, you can't make arrangements to deal in money or anything of value like that. You live totally reliant on those who support monastics, those who appreciate what you're doing, those who appreciate what you're teach or whatever, but I was in silent retreat most of the time in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language and they didn't speak mine, and yet everything was provided. At that time, I'd go on alms round and people would offer food for support. They would offer robes when I needed it. When I needed medical treatment, it was all offered. When I needed dental treatment, it was offered. When I needed a ticket to leave the country to go get a visa to come back in, it was offered. Everything was covered. Why? They so appreciate 
people, Westerners, anyone who's really interested in hearing and practicing the Dharma, that they will support you to do that. The only thing I could do in return, out of gratitude for their generous support, was to practice with integrity. That's all I could do. You can't say thanks, you can't, you can't do anything for them, it's not an exchange, it's not, there's nothing expected of you except Dharma. Do your practice. Several years ago, after teaching for many years, a couple of students uh, approached me and asked if there was some way that they could uh, share their wealth uh, in their retirement with, with others. And over the course of time and circumstances, we've, we've gone to Burma to uh, support education there. And over the last five or six years, we've been building schools, clinics, nunneries, and orphanages for, well, I see it as an expression of gratitude because of what I receive from the people of Burma. Now I'm able to see that they receive something in return. It would be easy to look around Burma and be totally depressed or angry, rageful at the way things are there. And yet, nothing is accomplished feeling overwhelmed. The challenge for each of us when we see the way things are, and when we have a heart of caring, a heart of generosity, an intention to practice, an intention to benefit others, the challenge for us is to do what we're able without being overwhelmed by what we're not able to do. We can all do something. And I have found that even to do the littlest thing to address someone's need or some environmental concern or some injustice in the world, even to do a little thing removes the feeling of being overwhelmed and impotent. It gives you a sense of empowerment gives you a sense of really fulfilling your own aspirations to be kind, to be compassionate, to help others in their life. It takes a willingness to look at all of the reasons that we don't engage the world. Out of fear, out of shame, out of blame, out of feeling uh, ineffective, uh, realizing that we're not going to solve the problems, all we're going to do is kind of cover it over for, or put a band-aid on it for someone for a short period of time. As Mother Teresa used to say in helping the, the, the poor and the dying on the streets of Calcutta, I'm not a social worker. I'm not trying to solve the problem. I just want this person to die with dignity. Can we have that relationship with those that we see in need? We don't have to solve their problems. We don't have to fix their life. We don't have to change the government to get different policies. We just have to be human in the moment that we see them, in the moment and in the time that we spend with them. 
to touch them with the heart of a human that cares takes courage, takes initiative. It takes understanding that this is the source of happiness and a sense of well-being in our own life, is to be willing to do that and able to do that. A wise person gives a gift carefully, the Buddha said, gives it with his or her own hand, gives it showing respect to the recipient, gives a valuable gift, gives it with the understanding that something will come of it. And on the dissolution of the body after death, one will reappear great among the gods or great among human beings. The Buddha said, practicing the Dharma and establishing your life in the Dharma is going to take you against the stream of your society. You'll be going against the conditioning that prevails in your society. And we can see. It's easy enough to just kind of go along with the way things are. And it takes a tremendous amount of intention, effort, aspiration, clarity, confidence, equanimity, resolve to relate to, even just to relate to, the world around us with our human heart. Generosity, or the practice of dana, is one of the three pillars of the Dharma. If you wish to establish your life in the truth, in the way things are, in the Dharma as identified, pointed out, revealed, taught, practiced by the Buddha. Three things are required. Three trainings are required. Dana, practice of generosity. Sila, the practice of living in harmony that Kamala spoke about last night. And Bhavana, the development of the mind through tranquility and understanding, insight. These three practices are required in order to stabilize our life across the spectrum of life's activities. And if any one is weak or missing, our life in the truth is unstable. We can see that the more intention and the more careful we are in our human relationships, speaking and acting with care and precision so as not to harm anyone carelessly or intentionally, would involve being generous. It would involve training the mind to be less reactive and more understanding. And to the extent that we grow in wisdom and understanding and insight and we see the way things are, we can't help but be impelled to be more generous. And to be generous is a way of creating harmony. These three pillars of the Dharma are mutually reciprocal, gradually increasing, any one affecting the other.
However, it is easy to be complacent with our life. We're living at the top of the heap. Out of all humanity that has ever lived on the face of this earth, we are at the very pinnacle. And I know some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have relationship difficulties. We all have financial insecurities. We're still at the top of the heap. This is as good as it gets in the human realm. Huh. Huh. Okay. Let me chew on that for a while. And we take it for granted. We get a little complacent. We stop seeing, in some ways, the danger of our lifestyle. Let me point to something. A friend and a student of ours, a few years ago, shared uh, her recent uh, work uh, with us. She's a, uh, she started a nonprofit. She's a consultant for businesses in, the, in uh, Silicon Valley. And she started bringing the question, what is enough to corporations? To get them to ask the questions of themselves, what is enough? Well, that's an interesting question for each one of us, isn't it? What is enough for my life? How much is enough? What is it I can do without? And do quite well, actually, without? Uh, what I have started to uh, consider in the refining of my understanding of sila, you know, the, the precepts that we take, uh, not killing, uh, not harming by misappropriating others' property. This, this one here has caught my attention. Because, well, you know, I'm not a thief. I'm not really stealing uh, from anyone, I thought, until I considered the condition of the earth and the impact that my lifestyle has on the resources of the earth and the numbers of generations of people not yet born who are going to bear the brunt of my lifestyle, our collective lifestyle. It is going to have an effect. We can pretend, we can have a political debate about it, but it's pretty clear to anybody who's being mindful and aware and understanding their own life. So the, 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 the question or the challenge for us is, does, does or will our collective lifestyle have a harmful impact on others? Does it now or will it in the future? Can we feel complacent and wise about our own lifestyle? Okay. Is the use of natural resources a spiritual issue? Is there any way we can minimize the carbon footprint, to use that phrase, the carbon footprint of our lifestyle on Earth so that others might be able to live comfortably, abundantly, easily, healthfully, 
the inner strength that it takes to ask yourself the question, what is enough, and to recognize the answer within yourself. And for each one of us, it's going to be different. But to ask ourselves, what is enough, and to live with that answer. The inner strength it takes to do that is tremendous. Because we have to say, enough is enough. That, that's it. What is enough? Enough is enough. This is good enough. When we know what is enough, and have the strength to acknowledge that, we will understand that insatiability is unsustainable. The only alternative is to let go of something, many things, a lot. This is the practice of renunciation. Generosity is a form of renunciation. Renunciation is a great gift of generosity. To others. There's a Chinese proverb that says, one generation plants the trees, the next generation gets the shade. Planted any trees this lifetime? There's a lot of need. And I think in reading the uh, about the uh, ancient peoples of this area here in Southwest. There's some speculation that it was because of the decimation of the trees in their culture that uh, they're no longer here. Interesting to contemplate. The Buddha said, well, let me first say, the Buddha was born under a tree as a bodhisattva. He sat under a tree, attained jhana, absorption under a tree, got enlightened under a tree, taught under a tree, and when it came time to leave this human life, laid down under a tree. And he said, I resort to remote resting places in the forest as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. Seeing in myself this possession of wisdom, I found great solace in dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to remote resting places in the forest, two benefits. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. There are these trees and the roots of trees, he said. Sit, meditate, do not be negligent lest you regret it later. We don't have to wait till later. Any act of generosity now to current generation or future generations, whatever we can do to make it possible, whatever we can let go of now to make it possible that others may live more easefully. We don't have to wait for them to be born to live out their life to get the benefit. Even as we remember it now, we get the benefit. Wisaka was the Buddha's chief patroness, the one who was involved in all the big ceremonies at the time of the Buddha. And she said, <clears throat> when I remember my acts of generosity, I shall be glad. When I'm glad, I'll be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil and pleasant. 
When my body is tranquil, I shall feel pleasure. When I feel pleasure, my mind will become concentrated. And that will bring about the development of the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers, and the factors of enlightenment. All from generosity. What are we sitting for? Well, we're sitting in order to develop mindfulness to see the wisdom and the need for practicing generosity. Because it is the direct path. It is the vehicle for awakening the factors of enlightenment, the factors of freedom, of liberation. It's said that the act of generosity is a practice of purity. And the purity of an act of generosity depends on three elements. The purity of the giver, the purity of the gift, and the purity of the receiver. I've spoken about the purity of the giver when the one who is practicing generosity purifies their heart of attachment, aversion, confusion, and develops a heart of generosity, non-attachment, love, non-aversion, understanding, non-delusion. Then we can see, oh, the purity of one's mind brings a benefit to oneself and to others. The purity of the gift, at the time of the Buddha, he was speaking about the gifts that were offered to monks and nuns, and he said, gifts to monks and nuns, or the requisites that are offered to monks and nuns, must be acquired lawfully. We can, un we can in interpolate that. Is that the word? <laughs> For ourselves, what we offer. Was it acquired in a wholesome way? And it must be appropriate to the recipient and beneficial to them. We can understand that in our lay life in the 21st century as when offering gifts, will it be used? Will it be cared for? Will it last long? Will it be beneficial to the recipient? And if so, then we can see that there is a purity to the gift. There's a purpose to the gift. And in that, there will be a mutual respect between the offeree and the one, offerer and the offeree, the donor and the recipient. <clears throat> However, while the intention of the one who's offering is of primary importance, the purity of the gift is really of secondary importance. <clears throat> Remember the bowl? The value of that gift was, well, financially, not much. But when we think about offering gifts, if we pick a gift of, well, less value than the intention and the, and the value of the gift, the value of the giving to us, then we won't feel very generous, we won't feel very energetic, we won't feel very happy about it, we won't be much joy. It'll just be kind of a weak karmic act that has insignificant results. On the other hand, if we give, give a gift of value, an appropriate gift of value, then we'll feel generous and we'll arouse re repeated intentions to be generous, 
there'll be a lot of energy around it, there'll be a lot of joy in relationship to it, and when we remember it, it'll bring a lot of result, a significant result. We'll remember it. And so the value of the gift, while it's secondary, and the bowl was not much, nevertheless, its value to me was a lot. And so in offering, making gifts, we want to consider the value to us of what it is that's being offered. The purity of the recipient is really, is the gift that's offered going to be used in a beneficial way? Now, I mentioned in the, earlier in the retreat that, you know, I've started meeting and greeting homeless and panhandlers on the street. And while it's an act of generosity, it brings a lot of happiness to me and to them, I can never be sure what that's going to be used for. And so there's this lingering, niggling, undermining of the happiness. It's still there, but it's just it's a little bit contaminated by the, well, what appears to be not purity of the recipient. Okay. Whether it's drugs or alcohol or who knows what, still there's a little there's a little dust on that act of generosity. So the Buddha said that one should really look to those who are pure in their speech, in their behavior, in their minds, those who have a mind of non-attachment, non-aversion, non-delusion, those who can know how to use the gift for the benefit of others. Because then, the value of the gift is multiplied many-fold. When giving charities and donations, the Buddha said, Consider wisely whom to give to. Charity and donations are like seeds. If sown in fertile soil, they will yield abundant fruit. If sown in poor soil, one will reap poorly. Near the end of my time in Burma, a couple of Burmese women came to see me in uh, my cottage where I was staying. And they said, oh, we want, we want to take you to meet our teacher meaning their Sayadaw, their elder monk, who is kind of the, the family spiritual guide, uh, the family's favorite uncle, the family's uh, kind of counselor, uh, psycho psychotherapist, and uh, a babysitter sometimes if the kids are <laughs> need to be looked after, and uh, reprimander, and it. Well, every family has a Sayadaw, the family Sayadaw that kind of is there guide to life. So I'd met a lot of Sayadaws. But these two women were really insistent that their teacher was pretty special. And so to cut a long conversation short, I said, okay, 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 I'll go. <laughs> and they came on the appointed day, picked me up in a truck, and off we went to visit their teacher. On the way uh, out of Rangoon, or to another section of Rangoon, they were telling me that this teacher had been uh, one of the first uh, Sayadaw to teach at the Mahasi Meditation Center when it was opened in 1949. And he was teaching lay people. And this was the first, this was the, 
uniqueness of Mahasi Sayadaw's teaching is that he, he taught lay people. Prior to that time, if you'd wanted to hear the teachings that we've now received, like anytime you want them or here at this retreat, if you wanted to receive these teachings, you'd have to ordain for life. There's a monk or nun in one of those monasteries, and, and hopefully your preceptor or others around you would be able to offer the teachings. But Mahasi Sayadar brought it out of the monastery and offered it to lay people. And their teacher was the first monk that he had, Mahasi Sayadar had asked to teach. So he was teaching, and he was very popular. He was, had evidently very accomplished practice himself. And as his renown spread around Rangoon, more people came to the monastery or came to the meditation center. And very quickly, the meditation center just grew in leaps and bounds, and just thousands of people started coming to the center. And so he was teaching them. And predictably, after a few years, the administrative duties and the teaching responsibilities were just magnifying. They're just ballooning. And so he asked Mahasi Saito if he could be relieved of his duties to, to kind of go do his own thing. And, and Mahasi Saito said, no. So he continued teaching uh, for a few more years. And after increasing populations of students and the size of the monastery, the meditation center was growing, and more responsibilities. He went to Mahasi Sayadaw and asked him again if he could be relieved of his duties, and evidently Mahasi Sayadaw said no. So he continued to teach. And this is the way of monks. You know, you have your teacher, you have your preceptor, you have your uh, benefactor. They guide you. After he'd been teaching for 10 years, and there was just a tremendous responsibility, he then went once again to see Mahasi Sayadaw and asked if he could be relieved of his duties to go live a simpler life. And there's something special about asking three times in a Buddhist tradition. And at this time, Mahasi Sayadaw said yes. So he left. He went to what was then the outskirts of Rangoon, uh, found a, a small uh, piece of jungle uh, adjacent to a, a monastery there, and he stayed there. And it was called Gold Cave Hermitage. So he became known as the Gold Cave Hermitage Sayadaw. Shui U Min Sayadaw. So he was staying there. And of course, it didn't take long for the, before the people who had practiced with him at the meditation center found out where he was, <laughs> came, over for, came over for some teachings. Well, when we arrived at, the mon at his monastery, his monastery was this little, like, one or two acre forest in the middle of this vast suburban sprawl. Those people had moved there to be with him. And every day he would go for his alms round. And in the evening he would offer teachings to those of the community who had to work during the day, but they would come to the monastery at night to practice. After their meal, to practice, and he would give them a Dharma talk till late in the night. And this is the way it had been for more than 30 years when I went to see him. It was also reported that, or reputed that he had extraordinary uh, clarity of vision and perception and uh, just n in numerous times had uh, addressed the issues that people brought to him before they'd had a chance to mention them, if you know what I mean. So, I was a little bit hesitant. 
nevertheless, I was on my way. So I went through him, and we went in, and I said, uh, hello, and I told him that I'd been practicing for about five years, four and a half years, and was on my way back to the States, and I wondered if he had any advice for me. And after a few questions of back and forth, he said, well, when you return to the States, just be sure to do your own practice. If you do your own practice, everything else will unfold fine. That was it. Well, as time unfolded, I went and practiced with him for a few few weeks and just had uh, further displays of his extraordinary wisdom and understanding and saw for myself the tremendous benefit he had been to the people in that community. He had lived a life of integrity, of purity, in living simply as a monk, without demands, without expectations, but willing to offer what he knew, willing to share his knowledge of the Dhamma, and to guide others in his understanding of the way to live in harmony, the way to purify the mind, the way to really liberate the mind. And in return, this community had thrived. His life, his whole life of integrity as a monk was a gift to those people. And they all benefited in ways that were both immediately obvious. They got the teachings, they got the practice, they got to hear the Dharma. But as we hear the Dharma, as we practice the Dharma, as we purify our heart, it goes with us. In our future wanderings in samsara, whatever that is going to be for each one of us, if you have a toehold in the Dharma, it goes with you. The gift is not only for this lifetime. The gift is for your remaining lifetimes of wandering in samsara until we all perfect our own purity of mind. Such a gift is incalculably valuable. It said, the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. If you protect the Dharma in your own heart, the Dharma will take care of you. And the Buddha said, the gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. Why? Because when we give the gift of the Dharma, as I said, it touches us now, and it's something we can take with us. It's something we carry with us, the purity of our own heart and our own mind throughout samsara. We'll recognize it more quickly wherever we go. And just as the Shweyum in Sayadaw's life was a gift to his community, the integrity of his life, so too your practice here, your willingness to listen, your effort to practice, the realizations that you have to the depth and the understanding that you do is a gift to everyone you share your life with. 
to the extent that you understand your own suffering and the causes of suffering, you won't be a source of suffering to others. But instead, you'll be a benefactor. We become a benefactor by giving, offering our life, offering the stuff of our life out of gratitude and compassion, infused with wisdom, genuine renunciation, knowing what is enough. It brings us happiness, a sense of well-being, and liberation. Generosity is a key to unlocking the heart's contentment and the mind's liberation. As Mahasi Sayadaw said in his encouraging counsel, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and humanity. So let's sit for a moment, just let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.